Andre, you're up next. Now, you grew up in Alexandria, Egypt, and at the age of 14, you and your family, who are Jews, were expelled from that country back in 1965. You, your family fled to Italy. That's right. I first read your essay in the Best American Travel Writing of 2002, and I have to say I've never been able to think the same about Rome ever since. So can you tell us your story now? Or I guess since you're an essayist, you're going to want to read this to us. We may never become Roman, and yet it takes no more than a few hours for the spell to kick in. We become different. Our gaze starts to linger. We're less fussy over space. Voices become more interesting. Smiles are over-the-counter affairs. We begin to see beauty everywhere. And the city is beautiful in such unpredictable ways. The dirty ochre walls are beautiful. And why not? Ochre is the closest stone will ever come to flesh. It is the color of clay, and from clay God made flesh. figs we're about to eat under the sun are beautiful. The worn-out pavement along Via dei Capellari is, however streaked with dirt, beautiful. The clarinetist who wends his way towards the sunless Vicolo delle Grotte, wailing a Bellini aria, plays beautifully. What wouldn't I give never to lose Rome? I worry on leaving that I'll slip back into my day-to-day life far sooner than I thought possible. It's not just the beauty that I'll miss. I'll miss, too, the way the city gets under the skin and for a while makes me its own. I first arrived in Rome as a refugee in 1965. Mourning my life in Alexandria and determined never to like Rome, I eventually surrendered to the city and for three magical years the Campo Marzio was a place I came closest to ever loving. I grew to love Italian and Dante and Leopardi, and here as nowhere else on earth, I even chose the exact building where I'd make my home someday. Years ago, after school, I liked nothing better than to lose my way in a labyrinth of tiny, shady, furtive, ochre-hued vicoli. What I wished above all things was to amble freely about the streets of the Campo Marzio, and to find whatever I wished to find there freely, whether it was the true image of the city or something in me, or a new home to replace the one I'd lost as a refugee. Then one afternoon, a miracle occurred. During a walk past the Piazza Campitelli, I spotted a sign on a door, Affittasi, to let. Unable to resist, I walked into the building and spoke to the Portinaia, saying that my family might be interested in renting the apartment. When told the price, I maintained a straight face. That evening, I immediately announced to my mother that we had to move, and would she please drop everything the following afternoon and meet me after school to visit a new apartment. She did not have to worry about not speaking Italian. I would do all the talking. When she reminded me that we were poor now and relied on the kindness of relatives, I concocted an argument to persuade her that since the amount we paid a mean uncle each month for our current hole in the wall was so absurdly bloated, why not find a better place altogether? To this day, I do not know why my mother decided to play along. 
We agreed that if we couldn't persuade the Portinaya to lower her price, my mother would make a face to suggest subdued disapproval. I would never have believed that so run-down a facade on the Campo Marzio could house so sumptuous and majestic an apartment. As we entered the empty, high-ceiling flat, our cautious, timid footsteps began to produce such loutish echoes on the squeaking parquet floor that I wished to squelch each one as though they were escaped insects we had brought with us from the Alberone district that would give away our imposture. I looked around, looked at Mother. It must have dawned on both of us that we didn't even have enough money to buy a kitchen table, let alone four chairs to go around it. And yet, as I peeked at the old room, this, I already knew, was the room I loved, thoroughly lavish and baroque, like a heroic opera by Handel. The Portinaya's daughter was following me with her eyes. I tried to look calm and glanced at the ceiling as though inspecting it expertly, effortlessly. I slipped into another room. The bedrooms were too large, and there were four of them. I instantly picked mine. I looked out the window and spotted the familiar street. I opened the French windows and stepped out into the balcony, its tiles bathed in the fading light of the setting sun. I leaned against the banister to live here. My mother had come well-dressed that day, probably to impress the Portinaya. But her tailor-made suit, which had been touched up recently, seemed dated, and she looked older, nervous. She played the part terribly, pretending there was something bothering her that she couldn't quite put her fingers on, and finally assuming the disappointed air we had rehearsed together when it became clear that she and the Portinaia could not agree on the rent. Anche a me dispiace, signore. I too am sorry, said the Portinaia's daughter. What I took with me that day was not just the regret in her dark, darting eyes as she escorted us downstairs, but the profound sorrow with which, as if for good measure, she had thrown in an unexpected bonus that stayed with me for the rest of my life. Signore, I had just turned 15. I have often wondered what became of that apartment. After our visit, I never dared pass it again and crafted elaborate detours to avoid running into the Portinaia or her daughter. Years later, back from the States with long hair and a beard, I made my next visit. What surprised me most was not that the Campo Marcio was riddled with high-end boutiques, but that someone had taken down the Afitasi sign and never put it back up again. The apartment had not waited. And yet the building I never lived in is the only place I revisit each time I go back to Rome, just as the Rome that haunts me each time is still the one I fabricated on my afternoon walks. Today the building is no longer drab ochre, but peach pink. It too has gone to the other side, and like the girl with the blackamoor eyes, is most likely trying to stay young, the expert touch of a beautician's hand filling in those spots that have always humanized Roman stone and made the passage of time here the painless, tiny miracle that it is. At 15, I visited the life I wished to lead and the home I was going to make my own someday. Now I was visiting the life I had dreamt of living. 
Fortunately, the present, like the noonday sun here, always intrudes upon the past. Only seconds after I come to a stop before the building, a budding indifference takes hold of me, and I'm hastening to start on one of those much-awaited long walks I already know won't end before sundown. I am thinking of ochre and water and fresh figs and the good simple foods I'll have for lunch. I am to go out tonight with old friends to a restaurant called Vecchia Roma on the Piazza Campitelli. On our way, I know we'll walk past my secret corner on the Campo Marzio. I always make sure we take that route, where I'll throw a last furtive look up at this apartment by the evening light. An unreal spell always descends upon Rome at night, and the large lampadari on these empty interconnecting streets beam with the light of small altars and icons in dark churches. You can hear your own footsteps, even though your feet don't seem to touch the ground, but almost hover above the gleaming slate pavements, covering distances that make the span of years seem trivial. Along the way, as the streets grow progressively darker and emptier and spookier, I let everyone walk ahead of me, be alone a while. I like to imagine the ghost of the poet Leopardi, or of the French novelist Stendhal, or of the actress Anna Magnani, rising by the deserted corner, each one always willing to stop and greet me, like characters in Dante, who have wandered up to the surface and are eager to mingle before ebbing back into the night. It is the 19th century Frenchman I'm closest to. He alone understands why these streets and the apartment up above are so important to me. He understands that coming back to places adds an annual ring and is the most accurate way of measuring time. He too kept coming back here. He smiles and says that he's still doing so, reminding me that just because one's gone doesn't mean one loves the city any less or that one stops fussing with time here once it stops everywhere else. This, after all, is the eternal city. One never leaves. One can, if one wishes, choose one's ghost spot. I know where mine is. What an evocative image. Not only did you really bring Rome alive for us, Andre, but what a powerful ending, choosing a place that you'd like to haunt. Um, let's talk about Rome for a moment. What made it so difficult to adapt to life living in Rome after leaving Alexandria? Well, my father had basically become an Italian citizen while still in Egypt. I suspect he must have bought a passport and we became Italian. So when they kicked us out of Egypt and expropriated everything we owned, we basically had to end up in a country that was our homeland, which it really wasn't. In Italy, we arrived as refugees, as Italian refugees. And back in Egypt, you were quite well-to-do. Yes, and we were totally, totally penniless when we arrived. And clearly, I, what I tried to evoke in the piece was the young kid, me. I was, I was trying to desperately to reconstruct something that could contain the best of Rome, which I didn't know much of, and just basically try to transport everything I had lost back into Rome and try to 
put the pieces back together sort of with, you know, spit glue and uh, make believe that we were okay again. And, and I've been thinking, actually, since you finished reading, what my ghost spot would be. And I think I finally come up with one. At first I thought, well, of course, the family farmhouse. But, hey, there's a captain in the Revolutionary War that has that as his ghost spot. Really, the place for me is a, is a pine grove that's not very far from my house, where I would go when I was very little and uh, find a bed of pine needles and just relax and look up at the sky and smell the pine. Diane, how about you? Uh, I, w- I wonder if there's a spot that sprang to mind for, for you, or, or, or you, Jay, uh, when you heard Andre talking about his, his haunting spot. I don't really have a, a ghost spot, a haunting spot. I think what I like, places where I like to live, has to have greenery, I guess because maybe because I was uh, born in the South and there was so much green around me. Uh, I need trees, I need grass, I need, you know, to see some of those things around me wherever I live. How about you, Jay? One of my ghost spots is is a tree, like yours, Diane, but this is, it's a beech tree that was seven realms high when I was a little boy, and it still exists, it's still on Pill Hill. And I would spend just hours from when I was seven to maybe 13 climbing up that tree. I loved to use my arms and feel the roughness. It was like a rough, rough gray elephant. And somehow that's a ghost that gives me strength, just feeling that and almost feeling the roots going down into the earth. We'll be right back with more of our storytelling special in just a minute. Keep listening to Living on Earth. 